Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the continuing greatest hour of glory upon the earth. Now that that's, who said amen? I like that. Whoever said amen gets a uh, point. Um, <clears throat> I'm glad they brought that out a couple of weeks ago in that lovely celebration that we have had. By the way, thank all of you who were able to come that you came, and those of you who couldn't come, thank you for not coming. <laughs> because if you were sick, we didn't want you to be here anyway. <laughs> but thank you so much. Thank you so much. So let's be turning in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. And today we're going to continue and complete chapter 2, verses 5 to 18. As we open with a word of prayer, Father, thank you so much for your word. Father, we pray that as we read, Father, that our purpose for reading is pursuing you. Father, that we pursue you with information and knowledge, the knowledge of who you are on the pages of this book. But Father, that that knowledge will also translate into very personal communication and fellowship. Father, our desire is your desire, that we would find in you an amazing God. Father, that we won't just know things about you, but we will know you in a way that every time we consider you, think about you, speak about, speak to, reference, we are overcome with amazement, with astonishment. That even you, the God of glory, the eternal being, the great three in one, the creator, the one who is self-sufficient and joyful in himself, about himself, needing nothing or no one external to himself. And yet you have created, knowing that the highest price would be paid when your creation fell. And yet you did it out of that unselfishness to share yourself with us. Not necessarily to display your glory because your glory has always been on display within yourself. Fully. Completely. Perfectly. But to have a people in whom the glory of your presence and of your rule and sovereignty and goodness would be able to be shared. What God is like our God. How great you are. And Father, as we study Hebrews, this monument, this mountain range of revelation and of glory and of explanation. Father, make yourself more and more to us astounding. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, once again, thank you for being here this morning as we continue in this study of what I consider, at least Christologically speaking, and what that means is the study of the person and work of Christ. Christology, the study of Jesus. What I believe is with the 
Gospel of John and Hebrews, the two most significant Christological books in the entire New Testament. If you want to know as much as you can about the Lord Jesus, and certainly there are passages in Colossians and in Ephesians, but I'm talking about an entire book, you need to read and get into and soak up the Gospel of John and Hebrews and then some of the other passages that are scattered throughout the other writings, especially in Ephesians and Colossians. But this morning we continue now that we have heard the first of five warnings. And if you were not here last week, let me encourage you to get the CDs because Keith shared with us concerning the, the balance and the truth on both sides of the assurance and the warning. And so get the CD, and if you have not picked up at the table in the back, Assurance and Warning, A Biblical Perspective, it's about a 12 or 13-page article that is taken from a, a writing. I think this is from Thomas Schreiner. Oh, this is the one that our own resident theologian has put together. And, and, well, Evan May put this together, and then we have a publication by Thomas Schreiner. And if you didn't get those, please get a copy, and if, you, if we don't have any copies here, let us know, and we'll get a copy to you. We feel this is fundamentally significant in an understanding of the Word of God, as the entire Word of God is fully God's Word, fully the truth, fully applicable, fully to take seriously for our building up in Christ. So where have we been? You remember in the first chapter, and when I say first chapter, what I'm considering is chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to chapter 2, verse 4, meaning, and I think the warning should be contained within that chapter, so I, that's what I mean by chapter 1. In the first chapter, what did we discuss? We discussed the superiority of Jesus as the Son of God. The whole argument in Hebrews, remember this, is against the temptation to apostatize against the temptation, as you heard last week when uh, Keith referenced Acts 27 as an example of an assurance and as a warning. Remember the uh, angel said, don't get out of the boat. I'm going to save everybody, and Paul tells them, but you can't get out of the boat. God is going to save us. Don't get out of the boat or you won't be saved. God is going to save us. Don't get out of the boat or you can't be saved. You remember that from last week? And so, the Hebrews are being tempted to use that analogy to get out of the boat, the ark, the ark who is Christ, this great boat of God, if you would, because the storms of life and the persecution are slashing against them in such a way in their minds that they can't stay in the boat anymore. And the author is saying, if you get out of the boat, you're falling into the waves of destruction and you're going to be dashed against the shoals of life and you're going to drown so he started the argument remember based in what trust jesus why jesus is superior why he is sufficient why why does he say he's superior and sufficient in order to stay in the boat why do you stay in the boat? Because it's superior to stay in the boat. It's sufficient to stay in the boat because the boat will get to the shore safely. There's no doubt about that. And they're being tempted to get out of the boat. So the apostle says this, 
He says, stay in the boat. Why? Jesus is superior. Two basic reasons. Last week, the last time we discussed the first one, he is the Son of God. Today, we discuss the next step in the superiority or the next side of that superiority, if you would. Jesus is superior and all-sufficient. Why? Because he's the Son of Man. Because he's the Son of Man. So let's talk about that this morning. Verse 5. Now, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. In this verse, you see, we transition from the ministry of angels, which ministry is a ministry, uh, which uh, activity of angels is a ministry. Angels were given to be ministering spirits. And we transition from angels, Jesus being superior to the angels, because you remember the Jews considered the angels second to God in the, if you would, the pecking order of superiority. Right under God are the angels. And he says Jesus is superior to angels, and if you're superior to an angel, you're in God because there's nothing else there. But Jesus is not only superior to angels because, you see, angels are given as ministering spirits. But he's also superior as a man because, you see, the ministry of angels was not to rule, but the ministry of man was to be a ministry of reigning and ruling and dominion. Now, the word world to come, do you see that phrase, the world to come? What that essentially and quickly, very quickly means is this. In the Old Testament, the entire history of mankind was divided into two parts. The present part, the present world system in which they lived, and the great reign and rule of Messiah, the latter days, the world to come, which we as believers would call, since we have the revelation now, the new heaven and the new earth. And so when the apostle or the author here says the world to come, that God gave the rule of man to the world to come as it will be manifested fully then. He's talking about the rule of the Messiah or the rule of the world to come, the latter days, the Messianic age. So this present age and the time of the Messiah or the Messianic age. So he introduces it. He transitions using verse 5 as a transition, getting in now into the ministry of man. Why did God create man? And so in verses 6 to 18, we're going to talk about how man will rule the world to come. What is the relationship of mankind to the world to come? And, of course, in order to talk about the relationship of mankind to the world to come, we also have to mention the relationship of man in this particular period as it will be completed in that world to come. Now, as we go through this, what I did this time, how many of you or have any of you purchased that little book, Let's Study Hebrews? Did any of you purchase that little book? None of you did. Okay. It's a wonderful, wonderful series of New Testament studies that take a passage and give you about three pages of explanation, of pastoral background, of whatever you will need. It's a wonderful way to study the New Testament. I highly, highly recommend these little booklets as your personal devotion. Let's study Matthew, let's study Mark, whatever. And so today what I'm going to do, I'm going to follow the outline and let's study Hebrews because I wanted just to show you that when we are studying a passage or a book of the Bible, 
it's appropriate, obviously, for us to be reading it, and that's the most fundamental thing to do is to read it. But then secondly, after you have read the passage, then take a good companion study that will help you to get some background information that you don't have because none of us have background information unless we're told what it is, unless we study. None of us come into this world with a background information. And explanations of theology and how things tie together from folks who have done this over the years and who have collected uh, vast amounts of information to help me and to help you better grasp the Word. As we grasp it, we have a better understanding and appreciation and experience of the Holy Spirit, and we live in a way to be exemplifying God's life in us. And so let me again recommend you, recommend you buy Let's Study the Hebrews or any of these little booklets. It'd be a great, great thing to give as gifts to people. So I'm going to follow his outline on this, which is it. I did purposefully just to show you what we have here. So we're going to break down verses 6 to 18 in uh, three different sections, I think it is. Verse six, verses 6 to 8. What is man, God's original attempt? What is God's original intention in creating man? Man as originally created. What does the Scripture say? Now, remember the Scripture that is used in these verses to give us God's original intention? Does your Bible have in the notes what Scripture of the Old Testament is being referenced? Remember what we talked about, how to study the Bible. You're reading along, and all of a sudden he says, Who is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man. Huh? What is that? Where did that come from? What is that? Well, how do you do that? How do you find that out? You look in the margin, and in your Bible, there should be a little bitty letter next to the beginning of the quote. And if you either look in the margin or at the bottom of the page, it should reference Psalm 8 and the verses in Psalm 8 that are being written there or referenced. Do you see that? That's how you obviously study. So what do you do? Let's say it says Psalm 8 verses whatever to whatever. Then what you do, you go over to Psalm 8, and you turn to Psalm 8, and what do you do? You read the original. You read the original. Just don't read the translation. Go back and read what these people would have read originally from the Word of God. Psalm 8 tells us this, that God's intention, it is through man and not through angels, that God will demonstrate the glory of of his sovereign and majestic rule. It's through man. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 1. Now, some people say Genesis is my favorite book of the Bible. Well, I don't know whether I can say it's my favorite book of the Bible, but I believe it is possibly the most fundamental book of the Bible because it sets forth the foundation of everything else. Ignorance of the first 11 chapters, especially of Genesis, will create vast areas of misunderstanding and questions in your mind concerning the rest of the Bible. And so, why did God create? What is going on here? What's God's original intention? Where is he going? How is he going to get there? What is going on? And I believe that Genesis 1.26, my own personal opinion, is the purpose statement that controls everything else in the Word of God. 
Once we had the announcement, God, in the beginning, God, we had the announcement, this is God doing this work in creation. Then after he creates, so as he gets to the end of the creation, he tells you, now let me tell you why and what is going on here. Here is what I'm after. In everything that you see in all creation, here is what I'm after. Let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. And then in verse 28, what does he say? He gives man dominion to rule over the creation. Do you see where I am? That's what God is all about in relation to us. We have been created for the sole purpose of being those in whom God would not only demonstrate the glory and the magnificence of his personhood, but as that personhood is manifested through the rule and reign of God as seen in the rule and reign of mankind over God's creation. You see, friends, we were created to be those who rule, and we will rule over creation in the new heaven and the new earth. We're going to rule over creation in the new heaven and the new earth. We're going to rule angels. We're going to judge angels. We're going to govern in the new heaven and the new earth. We're not going to be sitting on a cloud playing a harp. There's going to be a new earth. There are going to be cities and activities and things going on and relationships and commerce. There's going to be stuff happening except it's going to be absolutely without sin, that the Lord himself will be in the presence of it all, and that God will give, uh, they're going to be animals, and I don't know whether your puppy dog or your cat who died is going to be there, you know, who knows, but there are going to be things to do, places to go, and we are going to rule and reign. We're going to have sovereignty over it. Why? Because, you see, our activity of ruling and reigning will be a declaration and a manifestation of God's right to rule and reign as sovereign majesty. Correct? That's what's happening. Today, who, if I only had three hours, today, we have got to change the time frame on this school of the word stuff. Today, is the day that we are being prepared, formed, getting ready to do it on that day. And as we live today, we will reign tomorrow. Not just, uh, I think it would be good for you to do this. We are going to be ruling and reigning in relation to our walk today. Do you see that? There's a terrific thing coming. So let God do what he will in you at all costs, resisting evil, pursuing God. Why? Because God's glory and majesty and joy is tied up in this. Because he wants to be able to, to manifest as much as he, we will uh, cooperate with, 
the glory of himself on that day as shadowed today a little bit, but will be fully manifested when? That day. That's why we were created. So for a little while, we're lower than the angels as far as majesty and as far as activity is concerned. But one day, we're going above them, and we're going to rule and reign with Christ. You see, that was God's purpose. But what happened? Sin came into the world. Yes, sin came into the world. You didn't hear the static on this machine? Sin came into Man forfeited his right to rule. How? By rebelling against God's right to rule. Remember in Genesis 2, 17, the Lord said, Look, I give you all this stuff in the garden, all of it. But don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat it. You see, our walk with God and our ability and activity to rule is based in and as a consequence of our obedience. Because thems who will rule in righteousness will be thems who will obey righteousness. You see how that is. So he says, don't do it. I wonder why he says that. Because you see, he is establishing in man the ability to rule and to reign through man's obedience to his word. Because God ultimately will have no one to rule except those who will obey. But you remember verse 6 of Genesis 3, the last two words of Genesis verse 6, chapter 3. Remember those words? Or maybe the last three words. About Adam, what is the last? I think it's the last three words of verse 6 of Genesis 3. What does it say? And he ate it. And he ate it. He ate it. And everything came down. The worst words, he ate the fruit of the tree. And everything came down. You see, we're dealing here not with just a sin. But we're dealing with a sin as in every sin of purposeful, outright, in-your-face rejection and rebellion. The Apostle John says all sin is lawlessness. It's rebellion. That's what this is. It's not that Adam, oh, man, I should not have. Oh, I wish I was just in. No, this was a purposeful decision. Rebellion. And as a result, now man is being ruled rather than ruling. And I put a few verses down there. Man is now being ruled rather than ruling. So this passage is also understood, this particular passage in Psalm 8, not only about mankind, but it's also in reference, you see, because many passages in the Old Testament have a double meaning here. Many of them do. This is not uncommon. This passage also was understood as a reference to the manhood of Jesus who willingly submitted himself to the limitations and weaknesses of our flesh in order to be our representative substitute at the cross. 
So it's not only for a little while we were made lower than the angels, but also as a result of our fall in order to redeem us from the fall and take us back to where we should have been and where we were in the beginning. Jesus, for a little while, submits himself and lowers himself and humbles himself to be a man a little lower than the angels, needing the ministry of angels but actually being the creator of the angels, he now submits himself to the ministry of angels, needing that ministry as a man. Amazing. It's amazing. This is amazing. The one who created angels is now needing their ministry for a little while as a man, as he takes into himself all of our rebellion in order to condemn it in the flesh, that we should one day become rulers and reigners in his majesty. It's amazing. God is amazing. Be amazed by this God. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, neither to mankind nor to Jesus. Now, when the Bible says we don't see everything in subjection to Jesus, when that double entende is there, it does not mean that everything is not in subjection to him. Did he say nothing, everything is not in? He didn't say that. Because we know from Ephesians that everything is in subjection to Jesus. It always has been, but now it's in subjection to him as a man. Don't you see? Don't you see it? It's always been in subjection to him as the creator God himself. But now it's under subjection to him as the risen man. There is a man who rules the universe today. And we're going to rule in his rule. But we don't see it yet. Look around. You don't see Jesus ruling and reigning yet, do you? Do you really? No. Ah, but he is. Because you can't see it doesn't mean he isn't. So for a little while, we don't see it. So once again, there is a reference to fallen man as not yet ruling and Jesus who was ruling, but that rule is not yet what? Visible. Verse 9. Now we come to the heart of the message. Somebody read verse 9, Hebrews 2, verse 9. Just read it out loud. Now we begin to get to the heart of the matter. This is the crux of the matter. This is the crux of the matter. The crux of the matter for our redemption and the crux of the matter for don't turn away and don't get out of the boat is this, the name of Jesus. Why is the name of Jesus now used rather than the name of Christ? Because you see, Jesus is the name of his humanity. Jesus, the name that exemplifies his humanity. Now we see Jesus. I pointed to Jesus in the heavens as the Son of God. I've shown you that Jesus is a man as we are all men who are going to rule and reign, the apostle says. And now let's look at him directly. Now let's look at this one whom you are being tempted to leave. Let's look at him. Now do what? Marty, what does it say? Do what? 
beginning of the verse, do what? Verse 9. Yes. We see him. How do we see him? We see him through the word of God. See, we've been seeing him all these verses. We have been seeing him. And now the author is going to take us and show us more of him as we traverse more of the word of God. Having identified the Son as superior because he is divine, now the author reveals his humanity by the use of the name of Jesus. Now, this is a giant step because as God has promised, he takes on our humanity in Christ in order to give us his humanity in Christ. You see, there's a great exchange that is called. There's a great exchange. Our fallen humanity for his risen perfect humanity. And yet he has to remember, go through the incarnation and the death on the cross in order to occur, for this to occur. So verse 9 tells us why Jesus is superior as a man. Why is Jesus superior as a man? Why is he? Because he's the son. He's none other than the second person of the Trinity, the son of God, the eternal creator himself who has become a man. We call that the incarnation. The word carnal is flesh. In fleshness, the incarnation, he becomes a man. I think what we could talk about today and every day and how much we could discuss, all of us together, the issues of the incarnation. You see, the author now transitions from the heavenly perspective. We've talked about the sun in the heavens. And now that he's established the heavenly perspective, always we begin to build a foundation upon the heavenly, not the earthly. He has built now the foundation upon the heavenly perspective, and as he has done that, now he's going to construct the earthly reality or the earthly revelation of the heavenly reality. We're seeing the earthly revelation here of the heavenly reality. And this is true in the church. We are the earthly, what? Revelation of the heavenly reality. What we see here in part is real in heaven completed. So the heavenly presentation to the earthly and describing the ministry of the Son of, Son of God who enters this fallen and rebellious creation as a man, the incarnation. Why? For the sole purpose. Why does Jesus come? For the sole purpose of redeeming God's original intention that the glory of God's rule may be reestablished in man. That's what Jesus came to do. Now, within that context, there is a huge application of all the other activities, but that's what Jesus came to do, to reestablish in man who has rebelled God's sovereign authority and right to rule and to rule what kind of way with grace and goodness and mercy, that kind of rule, not autocratic but beautiful rule out of his heart of love and mercy. That's the rule of God. And that's the activity of God that is changing my heart and your heart into those who are being submitted to that rule as we are being overflowed day by day by the goodness, forbearance, mercy, kindness, faithfulness, patience of God in our lives. 
That's the rule of God. What a day. All of God's promises to reclaim his people from their sin are born on that day. It's the inauguration of the new covenant when Jesus comes. Remember the new covenant in Ezekiel 36. It's the inauguration of the new covenant, the beginning of the new covenant. What a day to have a people for the joy of his praise, to bring about the new heaven and the new earth. And all of this and so much more is wrapped up in just one man. You see, no wonder we hear the verses in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and following. Remember that? Remember that? Those verses? And there were shepherds dwelling in the field. And suddenly, remember what happened. The angel of the Lord appeared to them. And they were, as King James says, sore afraid. And the angel said what? Fear not. I bring you good news, gospel, good news, gospel, good news, gospel of a great joy, of a great joy. Whose joy? Whose joy? God's joy. The joy of God, Pat. We often think it's about our joy. No, Jesus says, my joy I give to you, that your joy may be full. This is God's joy. It's God's joy. We just can't say it softly. These shouting words, God's joy. Can you imagine? Get into this. God's great joy. Finally, finally, I'm ready. I'm ready to pay the price so my people may be ruling and reigning with me forever. My joy. Good news of a great joy. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, and his name is Christ the Lord, and you're going to find him wrapped up in swaddling or cloth clothing. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts singing what? Praising God in the highest and saying on earth, peace among men with whom God is well pleased. No wonder the angels and the whole heavenly host burst out with great triumphant glorious praise. No wonder. See, we, have to, we want to read these passages with the same understanding, or at least as much as we can have it, of what was really happening in the heavenlies. Heaven was joyful, and the bells of heaven were going off, dong, 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 all over the place. Why? Because the day of God's redemption is now on earth, and the timetable was set, and it's going to be just step by step, and the thing is going to be done. Right? Yes. We, we, let's be excited about this. God is an amazing God. This isn't just stuff. This is great. Mm. How is he going to do it? Look at verse 9. How is he going to do it? He's going to come into Rome with the marching angels. And he's going to slay them all with swords. 
and he's going to cut them all down and burn it all up and start it all over again. See, Matt didn't know I could sing. I don't know why he doesn't understand. I should be in the choir, Watson. Somebody made a scurrilous comment. I didn't hear it. Did you? Is that you? How is he going to do it? Now, look, when you see how he's going to do it, listen to these words. Because we are his co-participants in the gospel, his fellow workers. How he does it, at least in principle here, not in the fullness of it, we also must participate in how he does it. John, how is he going to do it? What are those words in verse 9? How is he going to do it? Through what? Through what? Suffer death. How is he going to do it? A.J., he's going to do it by suffering. 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 Why? Because you see, sin has to be eradicated and overcome, and it cannot be overcome except for the most extreme suffering, pain, price. Why? Because sin is that bad. We fail often in our walk with God because we don't see sin as utterly sinful. How is he going to do it? The suffering of death. And yet, knowing this, the Godhead rejoices. What verse does it remind you of? For the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the majesty. Hebrews 12, 2. Joy. The joy of God. This is an amazing God. Why is Jesus superior? Not only because of his divinity, but because of the death that he suffered as a man. The death is his ministry. The divinity is his personhood. And the two must come together in order to accomplish the work of God. Section 3, verses 10 to 18. What's going to come out of this? What is God after? God is after what he's always been after. There is nothing new in the Bible. You see, Francis, once you get past Genesis 1.26, there is nothing new. Everything is a recapitulation, a regathering of Genesis 1.26 as a result of Genesis 3.6. Everything is a regathering, a bringing back, a recollection, a recreating, a redoing, a capturing, a redemption unto Genesis 1.26 as a result of Genesis 3.6. See why Genesis is so important. If we don't see that, we, we miss vast understandings of the Word of God. A new heaven and a new earth. 
in which righteousness will dwell, and the Lamb of God will be the light, and there will be no need of sun or moon, because the Lamb of God will dwell in the midst of this city, and God himself will be there. And he will wipe away every tear. And Revelation 22, 4, I think succinctly sums it up with this. And they, we, they who, we, they, we, 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 they shall see his face. Finally, the face of God the Father being made visible and accessible and at least somewhat understandable to us, his children, for the first time since the creation of the world. Good days are coming. Good days are coming. So don't you be upset about getting older. Good days are coming. See, the author now explains why it is good that Jesus took on our humanity. Verse 10, for it was fitting good. It was fitting. It was good. Romans 8, 28, I should have put there. That he, who? Jesus, for whom and by whom all things exist, should make the founder, who? Of their salvation perfect through suffering in order to bring many sons to glory. What is he doing? What is all this about? It's about God getting to his original intention of Genesis 1, 26. I'm getting there. I'm going to get there. Sin came in. Satan came in. But there is nothing in all creation that will ever stop me because when I created, I knew it, and I was already prepared for it, and we moving ahead with the original plan. Never been sidetracked. Never been surprised. God has always been on track and always will be. Remember that in your personal life. I have to remember that in my own personal life. What, what, what? God is on track, always has been, always will be. He and we will get to the end. What are the benefits to God and for us? Verses 11 to 13. I'm just going to recapitulate them in a summary way. Verses 11 to 13. What are the benefits? In Christ, in Christ, in this great man, man and God become one in relationship to the praise of God. Emmanuel, one with God. Verses 14 to 15, because Jesus takes on our humanity, his death was death's death. Breaking Satan's stranglehold of the fear of death so that his people would be free to being, from, of being slaves to sin and Satan wonder what you have this is what you have 16 to 18 in the incarnation remember the birth of Jesus until the death of Jesus that's the incarnation from the inception in Mary to the death on the cross that's the incarnation in the incarnation God has kept his promise to Abraham to bless him and his seed forever which he accomplished in Jesus humanity made like his brothers in every respect, and ministry, a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, all at the highest price, propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation means sacrificial dying, the atoning death of Jesus, the shedding of blood, because his hurt has become our help. Oh, that we would get something here. How many of us are willing to be hurt by life in order to be used by God to help his people. The next time you're hurt, you are hurt. 
for the purpose of helping. Right? 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5 may help you out on that. See, the questions that the Hebrews should be asking now is, who is like our God? There is no greater. The Hebrews at this point in the letter should have said, you're right. Jesus is superior. And to this church, to us today, where are we going to go? Remember John 668? Jesus. I forgot what happened, but Peter says, Oh, Jesus said, Are you also going to leave? Remember all the people left him when he said, Eat my flesh and drink my blood? Peter said, Where are we going? Where are we going? Only you had the words of eternal life. Where are we going? Friends in Christ, when things don't go well, where are you going? When you're mistreated, where are you going? When you're misunderstood, where are you going? When you're sick, where are you going? Where are you going? Go to the only right person. Where? Go to Jesus. Don't go to the psychiatrist. Don't go to the educators. We're not knocking educators and those people. We're talking about essentially where are you going? I'm an educator, but don't come to me. Go to Jesus. And then if he sends you to me, you know, but, but first go where? Where? Go to Jesus. Don't go to the pastors first. Go where, Tony? Go to Jesus. And then he may direct you other places, but first go to Jesus. Next week we'll pick up chapter 3, verse 1 to 413. And let me encourage you to read that and read Psalm 95, which is the basis of those scriptures. And again, let me encourage you, get the Let's Study Hebrews booklet. I think it would be so good for you. I really think it would be great for you. Thank you so much for coming. Encourage others to come. See you next week. Bye-bye.